so uh, you know we've had the uh, the pandemic and now all of the unrest going on and now Yellowstone is uh, <laughs> <gasps> there are lots of earthquakes yes. in Yellowstone. Yes, let's do it. Oh man, I'm pretty sure that was a quiz question at one time in one of my classes. <laughs> so <laughs> that that class is freaking out. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, no, it's uh, there have been. I think well, we record this early in the week. Uh, I think. 20-something earthquakes in the last 24 hours that were of significant size. Yeah. Maybe it's because there aren't all the people there to, like, hold down the surface of the earth, right? It's like it's like isostasy and ice Yeah, you are not a geomechanicist. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. That is a compliment. (laughs) Oh, so I just searched this right as you said that. Um, and the third hit on Google is now this UFOs in Idaho and earthquakes in Yellowstone. <laughs> yeah. So I've got the rest of my evening planned out is my point. <laughs> <laughs> oh yes. It's, uh, it's definitely an interesting time. And that's, that's really a topic that I'd love to talk to somebody about, but all of the experts on that topic are very busy at the present moment. <laughs> Wow, that's oh, that's really interesting. I mean, I've read so much conflicting. I'm always surprised at how little we know about Yellowstone for how studied it is, right? Yes. I mean, I've read so many conflicting things about like the magma chamber is a kilometer down and the magma chamber is 100 feet down. And these are both like legitimate scientific, you know, studies. And that's um, that's always weird to me i mean my favorite thing about science is there are so many unanswered questions but that one seems like we should answer it (laughs) well you know it's one of those things where it's a really complicated system from what i gather and i think the answer to which one of those is right is yep (laughs) which is uh not comforting apparently when it starts (laughs) to uh earthquake a lot (laughs) i mean the good news is these are some fantastic sources for gathering data Oh, sure. Great. That's the good news. Yes. The bad news is we're all going to die. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you're a little more safe in Arkansas than you are in Denver. So there's that. Yeah, there's that. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm at no, virtu- I- virtual field camp in Oklahoma instead of in Colorado. So that's good. Yeah. But I am not, uh, I'm not overly worried. I am still sitting here bottling homebrew. <laughs> blissfully <laughs> just watching the, uh, the USGS earthquake counter. Uh, well, you've clearly never gone to the Panhandle of Oklahoma and seen the ashfall deposits from one of the last Yellowstone eruptions. So it's legit. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, when it happens, it will be bad. But mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. So drink up, I guess. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, is it, when is it being bottled? Is it ready? I don't, I don't remember what So day. it's bottled now. And do you and have to like so- let it rest? Yeah, bottle. I've got to let it rest for two weeks to carbonate because I'm using mm-hmm. yeast to carbonate in the bottle. Oh, okay. Well, that's, uh, that's frustrating. It is, but I bottled uh, while watching the SpaceX launch. And I did not get to. Uh, I was, yeah, too busy wrestling Google Earth to the ground, <laughs> which <laughs> yeah. is all I feel I've done in the last two weeks. <laughs> And having new appreciation for your editing skills, because I have a batch of video and a voiceover, and I have to put them together. 
And yeah, I, the clap sync doesn't seem so funny now, does it? It doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, there's nothing in the video that I have to actually sync to, but still, <laughs> it's hard. <laughs> yeah, when I was recording this week's MetPy Monday, which is actually on a really cool tool called PyTZ for doing time zone corrections, mm. which is a you're, pain. And you're obsessed with, yeah. Uh, yeah, <laughs> so... Uh, when I was doing that, I kept having somebody was driving around the block with a very loud muffled car. Ah. <laughs> and so I would have to time, you know, I'm going to write two or three lines of code and wait. And then write two or three lines of code and then wait. Ah. And so there's a lot of editing. It's a like a six or a seven minute video. And I think there are probably at least 10 to 15 cuts <gasps> in it. Oh, my gosh. I... I was always surprised when you said that um, you talked to our friends over at the Orbital Mechanics, who we haven't talked to in a while, um, and how they said, you know, they did so much editing, and John gets mad at me if I, like, sniff accidentally, so. <laughs> yeah, we we used to edit pretty pretty heavily, but that really kind of made the show not flow as well. It's really, yeah, it's really surprising. So I'm putting together... Um, my second online class that I have to do. June is most possibly the worst month I've ever had. Um, so I'm doing an online, a four-hour lab class online just for June. And uh, putting that together, and we're going over these topics. I met with my TA, and she and I, she was saying, you know, I think we should do this and this. And I was like, you know, I've done podcasts about most of these things we're talking about. And she's like, I'm assigning those. <laughs> and one of them was like episode 12 or something. And I was, I said, I'm not listening to this. <laughs> I was like, you can listen to it and let me know what's in there that we're going to use. But I'm not right. listening. <laughs> oh, yeah. It was, uh, mm -hmm. I pulled up episode zero and then I was like, nope, I don't have it in me. I can't do it. It's going to be so painful. Well, it's some foreshadowing, you know, next Next week is episode 255, uh, followed by 256, which in the 8-bit world is a very important transition, so we might have to revisit episode zero. Oh, oh, oh man. Uh, I think we should, like, Mystery Science Theater it. Like, yes. we, sh we should listen to it, and then, yeah. Okay, well, that's, that's for a couple weeks from now, then. <laughs> right. So with that, I think we should talk about some geology. And three, <sighs> two, one. Ninety percent of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information. But don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Uh, doing pretty good shockingly alive it's yeah it's hot though now it's gross outside yes it is mm -hmm. i was i was working hanging airline in the garage and it's miserable it's it is miserable yeah um so i went to the nursery the flower nursery this weekend and i took my daughter who is three and has not been out of the house since the uh last week in february <laughs> yeah it was real mm -hmm. intense I bet. <laughs> so, you know, it we normally you'd be out field camp. Yes. So you'd be away from family. Yep. Mm -hmm. And you would be even more hot and miserable. 
Yeah. Usually. Well, I mean, lower humidity, but yeah. So how does that compare to being trapped in a room with a computer all day and with family? (laughs) 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 While trying to teach an online field course. (laughs) Oh, God, this is great. So I actually had um, a meeting today with some of my colleagues about this. We've been having all these online meetings I've been talking about. And so one woman was like, can you tell me, like, what your typical day, like, with your students is and just how you're dealing with this? And I said, the first thing I do is I tie up and duct tape my own children's mouths. (laughs) (laughs) And then I get on Zoom all day. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I actually love it. I wish, I hope, I mean, this terrible thing that is the pandemic, but I hope we rethink how we operate because I'm a super proponent of work-life balance. I mean, whether you got kids or not, like, you need to step away. And it just, it's great. <laughs> I really All do. Right. I really do love it. Yeah, my kids are watching too much TV, and that really annoys me. And we've had to, um, you know, bring the hammer down on that. Um, but besides that, it's really fun. I will say one of my favorite things is I get to see my cactus flower, and I always miss it. And I'm real excited about that. <laughs> there you go. Um, yeah, but I'd rather be outside. Yeah. And it's so humid here. And it's like, it's not even that humid in Oklahoma. And it's so gross compared to Colorado in June. So that I do miss. Right. Mm-hmm. Not the nose, please. That sucks. Yeah. I, I still get those here, even though it's super high humidity. Wow. Really? So yeah. You just, you just brought it with you? I did. Oh, uh, that's too bad. <laughs> So when we were talking about uh, what we should discuss this week, I suggested that we interview you, and we're going to do that. Uh, sure. But not this week. <laughs> uh, no. Because you had an excellent idea. Well, it's, you know, much like all my show fodder. It just comes from what I'm teaching. And this week, I called an audible, and I said, we're going to go to Yosemite um, because a professor... Nick Barth made these amazing Google Earth um, Yosemite maps and this cool Google Earth Pro um, Yosemite exercises. And I love it because I've never been to Yosemite and it makes me so angry (laughs) that I've never been there. (laughs) Have you been? I have not. Yeah, see? And so when my friend and I... Exactly. So the deal is, though, if you want to camp there, you have to get online literally 255 days before you want to go (laughs) because the reservations go out a year and uh yeah and make your reservations because it's so heavily trafficked which is cool because that's what the google earth exercise is about is about all the quaternary deposits and everything um but i did a little presentation on yosemite and it's actually super interesting, and I thought we'd talk about it, because stuff out west is really weird, but this is much further out west than either one of us generally deal with. Yes. hmm Yeah. So, Yosemite is also much further north than I thought it was. <laughs> also true. Uh-huh, yeah. <laughs> so, it's in, like, uh, east-central California, not east-central well, yeah, sort of. The eastern edge of central California. So basically, if you went from San Francisco and just went east, you'd eventually hit Yosemite. Um, but its position relative to what we call the Craton is what makes it really interesting. Which is not that salad thing. 
the yep. crouton. Mm-hmm. The <laughs> <Right>. crouton. <laughs> Correct. Uh, but I guess similar, you know, it's the hard continental stuff. Right. That everything is built on in terms Cor- of the continent of North America. Yeah. So, I mean, we had to have something first, right? And so the cratons are, oh, to bring out my teacher voice, the seeds of continents. <laughs> and we... They're, they're, uh, they're uh, hold on, hold on, I'm working on this. They're <laughs> continentization nuclei. Uh, 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 uh. Oh, I'm embarrassed already about how much I just laughed about that. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, so these continentization nuclei. <laughs> Um, and what's cool? Or you know, throwback to uh, sorry, we got to do this. Uh, Throwback to uh, to Allison uh, Nugent's interview. These are giant continentization (laughs) nuclei. (laughs) Oh, fabulous! Um. So, so these uh, Yosemite is. I use it. It's on the edge, so we're on the western edge of the Craton, and these are some pretty old rocks. Right. Um, so we've got the Craton, which is full of the shield. The shield are the old rocks that are still there, or still, or at the surface, right? And then you've got like the crunchy edges of the Craton, because the Craton was like volcanic junk that came up, and there's lots of metamorphism and weird stuff happening. And so Yosemite's sort of right on the edge of that weird stuff happening part of the Craton, and next to the ocean. So the Precambrian rocks that are there were these weird metamorphic volcanic suites. And also there was a lot of sediments that were being deposited in that very shallow sea nearby. And while that was lovely, that's not what, you know, the rest of the West has in store, right? Because there's actually quite a bit of land west of Yosemite. And it had to get there some way. Right. Mm-hmm. And Which... Generally means continental motion and collision. Right. I, I feel like I may talk about this too much in class, but I just love it. Like, I love thinking about subduction zones. <laughs> Maybe it's because destroying stuff is fun. I don't know. Like, are you obsessed with a particular <laughs> plate tectonic thing? Or is this just me? <laughs> I mean, subduction zones are cool. Uh, I I mean, okay, so some of the glacier processes are like mini subduction zone. So yeah, I guess that, but I really like transforms because they all behave totally differently and we have no Ugh. idea why. It's like the lamest of the continental boundaries. <laughs> oh no. Ouch. Yeah. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, please send John your hate mail. Uh, <laughs> see, that's so funny. So all this stuff depends on like what teacher you get, right? Because I don't ever talk much about transform boundaries, but I talk an awful lot about subduction zones. Okay, hmm. so so subduction zone, you've got one plate that is subducting or being forced beneath another. Mm-hmm. And we're generally looking at cooler, denser oceanic crust that has traveled quite a ways. And mm-hmm. is now encountering this light, buoyant, fluffy, <laughs> craton, continentization <laughs> nuclei. <laughs> and it wins. It, it floats up on top, uh, if you can think of tectonic plates as floating. Mm-hmm. And we're pushing <laughs> this cold oceanic crust down underneath it. And all of, we've talked about this before, all that sediment on top gets bulldozed off, just like a bulldozer blade. Yeah, it's so weird to me to think that, yeah, you're just scraping that junk all off. And it's like, surely fish get caught up in this. I always make that joke, and I draw a dead fish somewhere, 
But that has to happen, right? <laughs> really the slow moving fish. Swimming fish. <laughs> <laughs> like blobfish, maybe. <laughs> um yeah, so now now it's exciting, right? Like we already had sort of like the crunchy edges of the craton rocks, which are a little more interesting than just one big igneous body. But now we've got all these seds in there, and you just keep piling it on, right? So the western coast of North America has just constantly been a sub- an active plate boundary, right? You're just constantly oh, yeah. shoving more and more stuff there. So while you're subducting, you're forming, and we've talked about this before, you're forming volcanoes on the overriding plate, right? Because that subduction, that subducted slab goes down, it brings some water with it, it changes the melting point. You get volcanoes on the overriding plate. But really far out, you could also have volcanoes that are on that oceanic crust. And they could be from other subduction zones or something else. But as you subduct that oceanic crust, eventually those volcanoes are going to hit that continental crust. And you're not going to subduct the volcano, but essentially you weld it onto that overriding plate as the rest of the oceanic plate continues to subduct. Yeah, so it's this big very massive not squishy thing and so it just pops off and kind of sticks yeah so gross um (laughs) and so now this is what uh you call island arc accretion because these volcanoes are you call them island arcs because they're just a line of volcanoes that's all it means by arc you know it's a line um and so this line of volcanoes gets glued onto the continent and the whole western part of um north america it's literally a train wreck and geologists always make this joke that it's a terrain wreck Uh. (laughs) (laughs) yeah how's that for a dad joke for you um (laughs) because we call these things exotic terrains because these volcanoes weren't formed on that overriding plate in place they were formed somewhere else and they get welded on, or if you get these little micro continents, they also get welded on when subduction happens. And so the whole of the West Coast from central Nevada over the Cordillera is exotic terrains. And it's a terrain wreck trying to figure it out. <laughs> but, all right. yeah, while you're subducting that, you start to metamorphose all those old sediments. So the things that were shales and limestones now become slates and marbles. Um, And this is all in the vicinity of Yosemite. And in the process, they make your paleomagnetic investigations absolutely bananas. Because you get all of this (laughs) sin, sin metamorphic change in the uh, the remnant magnetic field the worst like this is why like people focus on totally secondary magnetizations or totally original ones and that in-between world is only occupied by mathematical geniuses (laughs) 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 um so now we've got this plethora of rocks here in yosemite national park but really yosemite is mostly igneous rocks um and this all this happened in the mid Paleozoic through the end Paleozoic, just constantly shoving all this stuff onto Western North America, and then the Mesozoic, which is kind of exciting to talk about. We don't talk about a lot of Mesozoic stuff happening in and around here, or even in Colorado. There is some 
cool deposition. There's not a lot of tectonic Mesozoic stuff um, where I'm used to hanging out. <laughs> and so right. this is what's exciting about Yosemite is because during the Mesozoic, they had all these intrusions. Well, they started. They continued through the Cenozoic. Intrusions of igneous diapirs. So diapirs. Mm-hmm. We've talked about salt diapirs, right. but let's remind folks what we mean when we say diapir. Right. Um, so we talked a little bit about this when we talked about, um, you know, that thing in Canyonlands that I can't remember the name of. <laughs> a people dome. <laughs> right. So when you've got something that's squishy underneath something that's not squishy <laughs> and you start to compact it, salt will, it's more buoyant. And so it forms this sort of teardrop shaped dome it, it looks like a water tower right so it's connected to a larger salt body it's got a skinny ish shaft and then it starts to get this sort of bulbous on top and so it's shaped like a water tower and you do a lot of weird tectonic stuff around it um but it turns out magma's buoyant just like salt and you can form magma diapirs too yeah, so these are these are density-driven flows. They're if you released an air bubble in a tank of water, that would be a air diapir in the water. You're right. Yes, exactly. And I mean, probably I don't know how igneous diapirs move in correlation to like salt diapirs. Would this be slower, faster? I, don't, I mean, I would think you would be very concerned about loss of heat. Right. So if you're Even moving... Even though you're buried. So it'd have to move pretty fast. Yeah, it would have to move pretty fast because there's a bunch of them. So there's really... There's six main diapirs that form up the majority of Yosemite National Park. Um, and so these diapirs are now at the surface. They weren't then, so we'll get there. Um, <laughs> mostly igneous rocks. A lot of them are from these diapirs. Now, what's cool about having a salt diapir... It's like having, if you've studied anything to do with, like, ore mineralization, um, when you have this magma body, especially if it's traveling pretty fast and is really hot for a while, you have some weird stuff happen <laughs> there, like, really weird chemical stuff. And this is a point where I don't dislike chemistry. I actually love this part. It's real cool. <laughs> so you've got... <laughs> okay, you've so got... we got to listen up real close. <laughs> exactly. That's right. <laughs> And so, like, when you're doing, like, oral or mineral, like, you're looking for ore minerals. So you're doing mining geology as opposed to petroleum geology. Um, you're concerned about where they call them stocks, S-T-O-C-K-S, are these, you know, igneous bodies that are vertical. And why they look there for ore mineralization is because as this thing is cooling, it's essentially a little pluton, right? And our little guys are diapirs, so they're little bubbly looking plutons while it's cooling you know chemistry works one way right so there's only so much stuff you can shove into a mineral and there are things that aren't reactive and don't want to be put into minerals and so around these bodies that cool very fast so like you said john you worry about heat loss um as you cool very fast and start to crystallize you actually get a bunch of different sizes of crystals they usually call these porphyries because they're have both large and small crystals depending on how fast they're cooling and then around these porphyries you get stuff that sometimes is what we'd call like a native metal it's almost pure because there's nothing to stick 
gold into, or there's nothing to stick silver into. And by nothing, I mean there's not a mineral that wants that big old cation, right? Anion. Right, nothing that, like, you know, you can't substitute it for potassium or something right. like yes. that. Right, yes, yeah, exactly. And so when you have these weird igneous things, that's where you get a lot of um, these metal deposits because it's just like, oh, well, I can't go anywhere. I guess I'll just make this huge sheet of gold <laughs> or minerals that will take it in, which are really strange things. So and generally <laughs> concentrated themselves. Uh, yes, correct. And I mean, this is, this is the California gold rush is this kind of, it's the same process that would have supplied all of this stuff. And that's what's happening around Yosemite. So that's exciting. Right. So we've got all of these diapirs that are coming in, but you mentioned that you can see them now. And this yeah. is a process that happens pretty deep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so at some point, they had to get from there to here, which means uplift, which means tectonics. Right. Um, so there are at least three main orogenies, and that's a mountain-building episode in the West um, that affected both the ancestral Rockies and the present-day Rockies um, and the Sierra Nevadas. So this is also not a mountain range I'm super familiar with. I've been there several times, but it's not somewhere I do a ton of my work. It's west of where I work. But the Sierra Nevadas were uplifted through a bunch of different orogenies. The antler, the severe affected them, the Nevada orogeny in particular. And these orogenies occurred, lots of different tectonic styles, but also at this time, this huge batholith was emplaced and that caused a lot of uplift and that batholith is called the Sierra Nevada batholith and so at the center of the Sierra Nevadas it's not like a lot of other mountain ranges um, that we talk about like the Rockies or anything at the center of it is a gooey uh, you know gooey creamy center of magma <laughs> right so this batholith is a big burp of magma right that comes up and deforms everything above it. Mm-hmm. Yep. And so you get this massive uplift. And when you create massive uplift, nature doesn't like steep gradients in anything. <laughs> <laughs> so we start getting to work on it with all of the kinds of erosion that we are used to and have talked about before. And we start eroding that uplift down. But then we get to these really hard diapirs, and they don't erode so easily. Right. So basically you you do you have eroded a bunch of them, but that's why that's what's at the surface. Um, and also, so all this happens through the Paleozoic and the Mesozoic and the first part of the Cenozoic. But then around three million years ago, you know, we go into our uh, glacial cycles. and there's been a ton of glaciation, obviously back and forth, glacial cycles since then. And that's really what's affected this igneous landscape that is Yosemite National Park. Um, and so you think, okay, maybe you think, I thought, well, I didn't think the continental glaciers got that far south. And they didn't. But the point is, the Sierra Nevadas are really tall. <laughs> and so it was really cold. And while there wasn't a lot of continental glaciation that formed that landscape, like, you know, would happen in the northern parts, Montana, there was a lot of alpine glaciation. 
And I know you love to talk about that. Uh, <laughs> but that's really what formed Yosemite Valley is massive alpine glaciers. And it's pretty crazy the amount of erosion that ice can do. I mean, Half Dome is the iconic, you know, scene, Half Dome and El Capitan. And it's like Half Dome is half a dome because a glacier took it out. (laughs) Right. And I mean, really, anytime you hear the something valley, your first thought should be ice. (laughs) Yeah, basically. Uh, (laughs) Not always. But but yeah, so these big glacial bulldozers came through. And ice, especially ice that has uh, some gradient behind it to drive it, is quite the force to deal with. And then it can pick up these rocks in its base and drag them along and do all kinds of fun things with them as well. It's just, I mean... You think all kinds of rocks in its space. Half Dome is huge. If you Google a picture of this, it's huge. It's an exfoliation dome, which we'll talk about that in a second, what that means. Um, But the Tioga Glaciation, so all these back and forth glacial, interglacial cycles, stadials, all this jazz, um, are named. And so the Tioga was the one that was mostly responsible for um, carving Yosemite valleys. So it's like 18 to 15,000 years ago. So it's a really, a really young geologic or geomorphologic system there. And, you know, there's lots of glacial events out throughout the Rockies. What's interesting is in these alpine glaciations, I mean, you're eroding. Like if you're in an ocean, you're constantly depositing sediment. You got a really good time record, but and these glacial things, you know, who knows how many times they went through. It's really hard to figure out the cross-cutting relationships when what you're doing is actually taking the material away. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so. You're not just getting rid of it or anything. You're transporting it mm-hmm. and creating more problems elsewhere. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, it's just so crazy to me. Like, glacial stuff, like, it's really cool that you got to really get into it because... It's fascinating to me and just amazing what ice, which is a mineral, uh, can do Thank you. <laughs> can do to the landscape. Um, but we said half dome is an exfoliation dome. Do you remember what that is? Yeah. So you form some, let's say, igneous body at a depth, and then you exhume it to use some more jargon. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you, you, you uplift it and erode off of it and now it doesn't have all of that overburden pressure on it but it formed with that stress inside the formation so it starts decompressing and then the process of decompressing is exfoliating it's popping up popping off pieces of rock and this literally happens like you there's this great youtube video and this Which is from, we've, we've linked before. <laughs> yes, exactly. God, I'm so obsessed with it. Uh, and it's from from the Northeast. And it is, it's these pieces of granite. It's a process called spalling. And this happens to your brick on your house. I've, my house was built in 1967. My brick is spalling all over the place. <laughs> and it's just like the outer layer pops off. And it's because of, you know, you can get, it's, I'm sure it's accelerated by by ice wedging and things like that but it's yeah, mostly and temperature swings and yeah right exactly but i mean a lot of it is from this decompression because it's not where it formed and so 
if you look at these pictures of Half Dome, you see it, lo it looks like an onion. And it's just those layers of granite that are getting popped off and exfoliated off. It's really interesting. And, I mean, it's the general rule, right, that things are not stable in environments other than that which they formed. Right. Uh, so You know, you take a mineral that's stable in the mantle and bring it to the surface, and it's not going to be here very long. Yep. Your diamond rings, ladies, are not going to last. <laughs> well, okay. it's not going to be here very geologically long. <laughs> yep, that's true. Although that is a funny thing to say to people. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so... It's a really iconic landscape. I'm sure a ton of our listeners have been to Yosemite, despite the fact that we haven't, and I'm not bitter at all. Um, <laughs> and so it's, it's just kind of cool that it's not just shaped by ice, which makes it look, look so neat. It's a lot of these really weird igneous processes that have also gone on, and that's the rock behind the ice um, that is Yosemite Valley. Right. Yeah, I just thought it was a, a neat walk through how we made, you know, one of our national parks. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, before we, we move on, though, uh, we have some listener feedback about our show last week. Oh, great. Hit me. Yeah. All right, and this is this is very timely. Uh, I'm going to tell you, Steve, you got it in just under the wire. Oh, yes, I saw that pop up as we were talking. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but uh, I didn't read it. <laughs> <laughs> So Steve says he has his own story about double major, or about you know you were talking about having a unique uh, career thing to talk about during a job interview. Mm -hmm. He says he didn't double major, too much work. <laughs> uh, but he has two master's degrees, which is apparently less work to Steve. <laughs> nice. Uh, the first in musicology and the second in computer science. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so uh, Steve works in the software field. And he says he's often been helped by the fact that he has that first degree. And he says, some customers are music buffs, and so was one of my bosses later in my career. In fact, there was more interest in that than my CS degree. <laughs> See? Uh, exactly. He also says uh, that he remembers dimly that uh, our bumblebees are called humblebees in the UK. <laughs> That's precious. <laughs> that makes me love them even more. Yes, and he was listening to our show uh, while helping people vote in Pennsylvania. So oh, nice. Way to go, Steve. Oh, good to hear from you, Steve. That is hysterical that you read that, and how great. Yeah. <laughs> um, clearly, you weren't listening to me talk, but we'll discuss that later. <laughs> well, you know, Shannon, you just weren't being funny enough. <laughs> yes. Which brings us to this week's... Fun Paper Friday! Yay! Now, I didn't know how you were going to react to this paper. I thought you might think it was dumb. I'm super pleased that you enjoyed it. <laughs> I want to speak to this person that wrote this. <laughs> um, so I found this paper, you know, deep in the bowels of the internet. Humor as a Teaching Strategy uh, by James Wandersee. And this is from... The American Biology Teacher <laughs> Journal from 1982. <laughs> so we were young slash non-existent. <laughs> Thanks. I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. Uh. Uh, yeah. This is really interesting. 
And it's, I mean, it is exactly what it says on the tin, right? It's, mm-hmm. does humor help students retain information? Do they find it annoying? What kinds of humor are there? What kinds work? What kinds are appropriate? What are some examples of how you can use humor to teach? And uh, I do love that uh, the characteristics of humor starts out with the sentence, as late as Renaissance times. Uh, we go way back here. Uh, I thought that was super funny, too. <laughs> so we talk about the, the four humors, uh, yellow bile, blood, black bile, and phlegm. Amazing. That's amazing. And so if you had a sense of humor, um, it was attributed to having too much blood. <laughs> yeah. So uh, let's see. Yellow bile, uh, too much of it caused you uh, to have irritable humor. Mm-hmm. Uh, excess of blood was cheerful humor. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, black bile was sad humor. Obviously. And phlegm was sluggish humor. <laughs> Gross. <laughs> I don't even know what that means. <laughs> uh, yeah. So if you were humorous, um, you had too much blood. But it, how they break this down is super interesting. And I don't know why I thought... I think this is weird because, I mean, think about how many psychology studies are about depression. You know? I mean, tons. And I never thought to look at humor with the same scientific or, like, a cheerful disposition, um, which I may have, I guess, (laughs) with the same sort of scientific eye. But people do, you know? I mean, obviously this might have been new because he really cites one specific study quite a lot in here. Yes, and, but. you know, there's a lot of factors in humor, uh, but one of the categories is humor must be either hostile or non-hostile. Uh, these hand-drawn figures are my favorite, <laughs> as is most, you know, figures that we find they be usurped by the next Front Paper Friday. But these are really great. <laughs> Though, did you know, so it says that this author also made uh, comics and cartoons for this he, journal? Yes. <laughs> uh, so... He really can draw. Yeah, it's really great. I would love to see... God, this is the nerdiest thing I've ever said. I would love to see this dude take on a 3D block diagram. <laughs> I bet it'd be amazing. Wow. <laughs> I'm sorry, I had to top your trigonometry-based physics. You just felt there was something more there. <laughs> okay, yeah. Still hearing about that one from a week ago. Oh, yeah. Or two it's, weeks. It's, uh, not, it's not going to die. <laughs> so, you know, the biggest question, though, and I had this question when teaching, and I'm sure you do, too, is do students appreciate this, ignore yes. it, find it funny, or just find me unbearable? <laughs> oh, man. So this is my favorite thing, because all of my, for what they're worth, you know, lots of people say that student um, evaluations are worthless because students aren't good evaluators of how they learn and it's all just a popularity contest but to no one's surprise mine always say how funny I am and I love it so much (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah mine generally said something about less homework oh well yeah that doesn't surprise me either Not one bit. Um, Yeah, so I consistently get, like, super funny because I feel like 
maybe even sometimes I go overboard, which is hilarious because he has like a very specific 95% teaching to 5% humor <laughs> ratio in here, which mine is probably skewed from that. Um, because if you get too funny or you try to be too funny, you start to lose people definitely at the expense of the material. Um, but just funny enough helps people learn. And it's so true because when I teach how you make drop stones, which are glacial deposits that have been rafted out to sea, right? I always say icebergs poop them out. <laughs> and every test, every single person writes icebergs poop them out. And without fail, no one misses that question. <laughs> right. And I love in the first paragraph of this, he says, you know, humor in formal presentations was considered inappropriate and counterproductive. You serious scholars would consider using it. Uh, the subject matter alone was supposed to keep students interested in what an instructor had to say. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Which anybody that's taught in the real world knows that doesn't happen. Oh, God, I thought that was great. There's another quote later on um, in here, too, that is sort of alluding to that. Um, I'll have to find it. While we're discussing this um but i mean he is this is a rather scientific paper because they talk about how humor evolves which i never thought about but i mean it's clear i got two kids this is very clear <laughs> um that there are these categories of humor that start from like little babies laughing when you tickle them to basically sarcasm <laughs> which we know nothing about nope <laughs> so you know, one comment. Why we're, before we go too late in this paper, uh, did you notice that in addition, so they had a little bio of the author, which I mm -hmm. like, mm -hmm. and they have an author headshot. Yes. Yeah. I wish more journals would do this. Really? Not because I think that it is so very important that people see my ugly mug, <laughs> but I think it makes the readers and reviewers... You know, it's like you're yelling at a car. Yeah. Versus you're yelling at the person in the car, right? Uh -huh. it, it, it humanizes, no, another person that looks like this sat at their kitchen table and wrote this at 10 o'clock at night after they were just dealing with all the crap that happened that day. Amen. Another person did this and we need to treat them like people. That's just a, a tangent. Amen to that based on interactions we have both had about people talking about reviewers <laughs> lately. I... 100% agree. This goes with my so whole... journals? Yes. Bios and headshots. Amen. My whole philosophy of like, nothing's objective. It simply can't be because we're all human. So, yes, that is true. Imagine Morgan Freeman is going to read your review comments to their children. <laughs> oh, I'm sure that Twitter account exists. <laughs> I'm sure. Uh, so, so anyway, uh, there are these different classes of humor that can be used. And... <laughs> comes up with the uh, the humor generator, which takes uh, the different sources of humor. Oh, my gosh. Which can be things like wordplay or nonsense or exaggeration and combines them with forms of humor, such as jokes or my personal favorite, the pun, <clears throat> or limericks, which we have a little bit of experience with on this, mm. this podcast. Yeah, sure. Um, though I had never heard the word anapestic lines before. Uh, yes, there's that one. And have you heard reversed theory, a form of science humor? 
I thought that one was really interesting. <laughs> Whereby, Whereby <laughs> principles of accepted theory are reversed <laughs> and made to seem plausible. <laughs> like, oh, what? There's a thing for this. Okay, cool. <laughs> and I also, the uh, this one sounds like it's straight off a of car talk. The bogus experiment. <laughs> a humorous account of an unbelievable experiment. <laughs> That's like the second, the last part of our show for the last five years. <laughs> right oh man um and so this humor generator is a basically a flow chart of how to be funny if you think you need to inject some humor into your lectures a hand-drawn flow chart which is just great yeah so you hit the start button select hostile or non-hostile select an object like a think thing a plant an animal or so on uh, <laughs> a source you slide the form control to joke, pun, limerick, and so on. And then a printout <laughs> slot will give you your joke with a laugh meter. <laughs> oh, I love it so much. There's also a groan warning light, though. There is. So beware. Uh, that would be burnt out on mine. Oh, that's for sure. <laughs> but I'm really disappointed, though. Well, I guess maybe not. I'm not sure what year this movie came out. It may not have been a joke yet. Uh, but the laugh meter only goes to 10, not 11. Oh, Oh, it had to check. So this was probably written in 81. Hmm. Yeah, let's see. This was... Hmm. Okay, so you keep talking, and I'm going to do a deep dive on that. <laughs> um, so one of the things that I thought was really interesting in here is they said that male teachers were more likely to use humor than females, and when females used it, it was mostly hostile humor, as opposed to male colleagues, which was a wide range of things, especially self-deprecation. Right. I thought that was a very interesting um, nugget. Yes. I guess, I don't know. I, hmm, I have a lot of really funny friends, so I would have not called that at all. I would love to see that formally studied. <laughs> That's my point. Oh, yes. So <laughs> uh, this paper was probably written... Uh, two to three years before this is Spinal Tap was released. Oh, okay. There you go. So it, the meter couldn't go to 11. There you um, go. <laughs> and they, they have some examples in here of humor. Oh. My, my favorite is the joke. Oh, mm-hmm. Uh, which is, have you heard they're going to send up 50 head of cattle on the next space shuttle flight as part of a biology experiment? It will be called the herd shot around the world. Ah, ah, ah. I also quite like that one, I will say. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, he has another example of an anecdote, an anecdote, which is probably a little sexist now. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, so that's funny. Um, the cartoon's real good, um, where the professor says, draw the structure of ATP, you know. Adenosine triphosphate. Yes, and the picture the student drew is of a TP. <laughs> As in the place where you live in a tent-like structure and have fires. Correct. Hilarious. Yes. <laughs> and then this ridiculous photoon. So, <laughs> yeah, photo caption that is funny. Oh, God, I can't. I can't even. <laughs> yeah, so you see a couple of carboys uh, <sighs> that are, looks like to me they're fermenting. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, right, because so, there's a balloon on each of them, right? Right. So one of them, the balloon, has no CO2 in it yet. Mm -hmm. uh, 
and it says, oh, Marsha, I wish I had your sparkling personality. And the <laughs> other car boy that has a inflated balloon on top of it says, Wilma, quit your whining. Ugh. So fermenting wine here. Mm. Isn't it pasture? <laughs> isn't pasteurization? Bedtime anyway. CO tomorrow. Oh. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> so I'll forgive those. Um, I just thought this was funny that this even got written to begin with. And it's, yes. and it's legit. Like, it. I don't know how uptight biology teachers were that this needed to be written. But I can see that it might have been pretty uptight, right? The whole, this is like the beginning, or, or this 1979 paper they cite a lot, the beginning of the de-stuffifying, you know, old white male scientists that are completely serious all the time. I would say, I mean, think of some of the most senior professors that you had in geology or math or any field. Yes. <laughs> uh, and they could have potentially used some de-stuffifying. A hundred percent. I would have liked calculus so much better had my Calc 4 teacher taught all of my calculi. <laughs> Shannon, once you realize that it's really what's behind trig-based physics, it just speaks for itself. <laughs> Completely. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> it's not going away, ever. No, it's not. So uh-huh. if you have your own biological humor that we can read on the air... <laughs> We would love to hear that. Shannon, how can folks get a hold of us? Uh, show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. Get that in before 9 o'clock so we can read your comment on the air, <laughs> <Right>. Steve. Uh, <laughs> um, you can also find us on Twitter. We're at don'tpanicgeo. I'm at Shannon Doolin. John is at geo underscore Lehman. Um, I've been on the Slack channel, but it's real sad and lonely in there. I tried to talk to Martin. <laughs> and you can find us there, the Don't Panic channel of the Software Underground. And thank you to our Patreon supporters for keeping us in stickers and in microphones. We'll do some more um, interviews soon. And if you would like to support us, you can do so. Uh, Patreon.com slash Don't Panic Geo. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or 